One of the things I've noticed is that grace, we use grace all the time in church. It's probably one of the most overused words ever in the church. And it's, it's, people use it in society. People use it in other religions. Grace is a word that's used a lot, let's face it. And so what happens is when words are overused, people hear grace, they hear grace, and they just repeat it, and they don't even know what it really means, the full impact of it. And so we see that in culture and all around us, that we, people don't know what grace means. Um, I'm reminded of the, the Princess Bride quote, you keep on using that word, I do not think you know what it means. We, I like watched that 10 times in high school. Like they played it whenever like the substitute didn't want to do work, they played Princess Bride. So it's like, like embedded into my mind at this point. But yeah, I mean, we, people don't know what the word really means, both in society and sometimes, sadly, even in the church. And uh, I'm going to give you some examples. The first quote is from Bradley Whitford, which he's an actor who's played in the West Wing. But because I was raised in the 90s, I remember him from the weird comedy uh, Billy Madison. I remember him as Eric, the bad guy, you know, with the weird cackle. And so this is what he says grace is. Infuse your life with action. Don't wait for it to happen. Make it happen. Make your own future. Make your own hope. Make your own love. And whatever you, your beliefs, honor your creator, not passively waiting for grace to come down from high, but by doing what you can to make grace happen. Yourself, right now, right down here on earth. So that's Eric from Billy Madison. I would know him. So yeah, he's, he's one of those make it happen, you got to do it yourself uh, kind of guy. Didn't work out in the triathlon, but you know, he's one of those guys, you know, make it happen. And uh, this is probably a more reputable source, uh, Mother Angelica, who was well known in religious broadcasting. This is what she says grace is. At baptism, I received grace, the quality that makes me share in the very nature of God. So according to Angelica, it's something you have to receive through an action, through a work, namely you, you do it through baptism, something you have to do to get grace. And this is from Guru Nanak, um, Nanak and he is the founder of Sikhism, interestingly enough. And this is what he says about grace. Let God's grace be the mosque and devotion, the prayer mat. Let the Quran be the good conduct. So it seems like he's saying grace is just basically a religious building, devotion. It's, it's religious ceremonies and things you do for God. That's what he is defining grace as. And, um, and the last one I'll end with is from someone I hope you know, or else it really dates me, but from uh, uh, the pop singer Jewel. You know, my hands are small, I know. They're not mine, they are your own, right? That one. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is what she says grace is. I'm becoming more and more myself with time. I guess that's what grace is. The refinement of your soul through time. So, what she thinks grace is, is becoming more yourself and whatever that means. Now, some of these might be nice definitions of grace, but that, it, technically speaking, is not what grace is. Grace in our society has become, really, a word for just good, almost. It's like anything that's good is just called grace. And it matters what grace is, because grace is used in Paul's writings over 90 times. And as a matter of fact, 
Paul makes up two-thirds of the uses of grace in the New Testament. It's around 150 or something like that. But basically, Paul makes up a, a good portion of the uses of grace in the New Testament. He uses it more than any other author. Grace is, and I would say our definition of grace really stems from the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at it. But from a Greek language perspective, because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And so this is a huge word. It's, a very, it's used very often in Paul and in the New Testament, but especially in Paul. And so this morning, we're going to see how Paul treats grace. And what he first does by looking at what grace is, is he tells us what grace is not. So we're going to look at it's not law and works. And so he's going to have this contrast between law, works, and all these sort of things and contrast them with grace. So looking at Romans uh, 4.13 through 14, our verse by verse study where we left off, says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That was our last week's lesson. So this is the promise here. The heir of the world. For it is, if, the, if it is the, the adherents of the law who are the heirs of the world, faith is null... And the promise is void. So he's referring to the adherence of the law here as legalist. Like kind of we would kind of view a Pharisee, you know, someone who's really, you know, tries to keep the rules and gets self-righteous as a result. Paul's point then is if the legalists are right, if they're correct, then there's no salvation. There's no faith, there's no promise, there's none of this stuff. And why is that? Well, we, as we've seen looking through Romans, looking at Galatians, kind of comparing them, very, very similar letters in Paul's writings. But the reason why it's all messed up and the promise is all gone away with is because in order to be righteous by the law, you have to keep it perfectly. Perfect, perpetual obedience. And we all know... No one's perfect. To err is human. And so if the promise were based on our perfection, our performance, then hey, there's going to be no promise. If it's based on that, because we fail that like the moment we have thoughts, pretty much. It's, 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 we're, we're crossed out on that. So the only way we're going to be saved is through the promise, is through grace, through faith alone. That is the option, only, only pathway available to us. Romans 4.15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the law itself brings wrath because if we break God's law, we we're going to break it, um, then that's going to, that's going to, the God's law is actually a reflection of who God is. So it's not just like a little like, oh, that's God's law. He just kind of made that up and we have to follow it. No, it's who God is. It's a reflection of his holy nature. And so when we sin against God, we're committing offenses of cosmic treason. We are sinning against an infinite God. And so God, when we just think about his law, I mean, and we don't think about grace, we just isolate the law. We look at just law, we're, we're going to be punished because we're not, we're not measuring up. So the expression law brings wrath means that when we hear the law without grace, without the gospel, uh, it just it's 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 going to bring wrath because we want to kind of do the opposite of what the law says, and so when we hear the law. We're like, yeah, I don't want to follow that, and we get in deeper waters with the Almighty, and that's part of human nature. I think that we often forget. Maybe we want to forget it that we don't want to follow the law. We don't like when people impose things on us. Uh, imposing laws on a population doesn't make people obey. Usually, it actually makes people want to do the opposite. Especially if there's not, you know, major consequences. If someone just tells you to do something, you know, you don't want to listen to it. Some stranger tells you to do something in the street, like, I'm not going to listen to you. 
So, yeah, and so the sinful nature, hearing the log, wants to do the opposite. We're all kind of a little rebellious. You're not alone, though. It's, it's kind of interesting and ironic that the Apostle Paul was a little bit of a, you know, kind of think of him as a Harley Davidson bike or kind of a little, a little bit of a rebel without a cause. Because when you read Romans 7, that's what I'm about to read, you know, we view as, you know, Paul as this really religious, you know, holy kind of guy. But he kind of paints himself in Romans 7 as a little bit of a rebel. Look at this. This is his, his personal life. He's talking about the law here. Romans 7, 7 through 10. What shall then we say then? Is the law itself sin? By no means. So the law is not sinful. We are. We just, we're kind of you know, little rebels. We want to go against it. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin in the sense he would not have known the, the, the law of, of God in the written sense. For I would not have known what, if, what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all types of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death for me. So the law makes Paul sinful. And so that's the irony is you tell people to be good. People say, so, you know, Nate, you preach so much grace. You should tell us to behave more. Well, you tell people to behave and be good, and they want to do the opposite of that, don't they? Anybody who has toddlers and teenagers know that this is to be the case. If you tell them to do something, they don't want to do it. My kids uh, will, is, are like this whenever we put them to bed. It's so ironic is when we say, all right, Abigail and Kenny, go to bed. It's like... They, they, they want to run around and do anything they can. It's like hostage negotiations. I want bread. I want juice. You said I could watch this. You said we could get ice cream today. You know, they remember pretty quickly all the promises you mount up there, don't they? Real quick. And so it's just you're in this negotiation thing. All right, I'll give you bread, and well, tomorrow we'll get extra ice cream. Then will you go to sleep? You know, and it's just like you can't really tell them. You have to negotiate with them. It's just desperate times. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, parents of... Young children don't have a choice but to negotiate with terrorists, right? We live with them. So eventually what we did is we just gave up. And we're like, yeah, just go upstairs and read your books. And they just fall asleep. Great parenting, huh? <laughs> just go up and read books. And they just like pass out, you know, 10 minutes later on top of a book. And it's crazy, you know, to me that we were going to pick up the grandparents and we were in our car and I said, Kenny, he, you know, I could, he likes to fall asleep in the car because we don't tell him to do that. I said, Kenny, try to stay awake for another minute. We're going to pick up grandpa and grandma. They want to see you awake and they want to talk with you. Just stay, just stay awake for one more minute. As soon as I say that, he's out. I look back and he's like in a dead, you know, dead sleep, completely passed out. So when I tell him to stay awake, I should just tell him, hey, guys, stay up all night and they'll probably fall asleep. Maybe that'll work. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me. And I'm, you know, I can't blame my son Kenny for his transgression and rebellion against his parents. I'm the same way. The other day, and it's so providential that I, this happened to me because I'm preaching a sermon on this, but I saw a YouTube video and it says, do not watch this video, it's scary. And I'm like, I'm gonna watch this video. And it's got like all these views, like millions and millions of views. People in the comments are like commenting like, this video is, it by the way, it's like a terrible like ghost hunter thing, you know, like we're like, did you hear that? Oh, look at the light on the ground. It's like totally from the sun, you know, it's like, you know, those cheesy ghost hunter things. And it wasn't even scary. I mean, you wouldn't even get a nightmare from this. But anyways, people were, were watching this and they were commenting in this comment section saying, the only reason I clicked on this dumb video is because it told me not to. 
So that's just how we are. I mean, we're, we're messed up. Something's wrong with us. And Augustine had this experience, which Jacob referenced in his sermon, um, where he was, you know, he had this pear tree and his neighbor had a pear tree. And the pears were equally good. There's no issue with, like, the pears were better. That's why I went there. No, they were equally good. But he said he preferred his neighbors because he wanted to steal it. And he enjoyed the taste of it. It was sweeter, or he felt it was, even though it wasn't, because he enjoyed wickedness. He enjoyed doing the wrong thing. And that's why Hebrew says the, the pleasures of sin are fleeting. There is an, a sort of type of pleasure with sin. But it's just not going to last. It usually ends in misery. But there's a fleeting sort of pleasure to sin. And so that's when Paul says, yeah, okay, there is no law, there is, there is no transgression, which is what he says here in Romans 4. And we know from Romans 2, the law of God, in, in a certain sense, is written on our hearts. We know in a general sense there's right from wrong. And so what Paul means here is by, by law is he means the written law of Moses, not the law on the heart that we might think of or that we don't know any sense from right or wrong. No, he's talking about the law on the heart. And so uh, we know that it's wrong to steal, steal stuff. But when someone tells you not to steal, you're like, whatever, I do what I want. That's how we are, you know? We would normally like, oh yeah, stealing's bad. Someone's like, you should not steal ever. I do what I want. I, don't tell me what to do. That's how we get, you know? We get a little, we get a little sassy, right? And so there, there, there is no, when there's no written law, when there's no covenant, when there's none of this stuff, you know, it's, we, 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 do, we do kind of okay. We're, we're always sinning. We're messing up. But, uh, but it's not like as blatant. And this is what Paul means by transgression, kind of like there's a written code and we're blatantly going against it. And when there's no written code, we're not blatantly going against that kind of stuff. So, yeah, in some sense, with, with the written law, without grace, without the gospel, we hear the law without grace, we just, it makes us more blatantly sinners. And that's what he says, when there's no law, there's not this major kind of transgression going on where we're blatantly disregarding something. An analogy I thought of, because this happens to me, I love Silver Lake. I am a Silver Lake aficionado. I love going there on Sundays and just walking around there and just decompressing. Uh, it just brings such joy to my heart to see God's creation, and I love seeing moose. I'm a big moose fan. Um, that sounds weird, but anyways. Uh, <laughs> I like animals, okay? Deer are good, too. I'll take them. But, you know, I'm on this, this, this trail, and I'm just walking around. I would never really think about stepping off the trail. I mean, it's all so pretty and prim up there at Silver Lake. But they have, like, these signs that say, like, hey, don't get off the trail. There's, like, vegetation over here. And I'm like, I want to get off the trail now. And that's kind of like how the law and the transgression is. When, the, when that sign is there, um, I want to kind of like go against it and explicitly defy it. But if it's just a trail, I mean, trails are kind of telling you where to go. But it's kind of like an indirect kind of way of telling you where to go, right? And you're like, okay, you're going on the trail, but you're like, sign, stay on the trail. I'm like, oh, I want to go off of it. And that's what he's talking about here. It's more blatant disregard of an explicit standard lay, laid down. So when there is no law, explicit standard, there is not this kind of like, you know, bucking defiance, if you will. And, but that's opposite of grace. That is different than grace and how it works because the law by itself, without grace, with the gospel brings death and disobedience and shame and guilt and all of these things and just kind of wrecks our lives. But with grace, we want to follow the law all of a sudden. So there's this shift here. So grace is different than law. Law is different than gospel here. And look at verse 16. 
That is why it depends on faith, the promise that he's talking about to Abraham. In order the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, not only to people who are legalistic or even adherents to Judaism at the time, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all, father of Gentiles and Jews, all people, all nations, as the heirs of the worlds we looked at last Sunday. So the promise here is only going to be consistent with grace through faith alone. That's it. Works and law are not consistent with grace. They don't work well. They don't, you know, blend together very well. You know, it's like putting a bunch of salt in a milkshake. It doesn't work well. Don't do it. It's going to be nasty. Like, I do that, Nate. Don't do it. <laughs> so, so he makes, he says here, okay, yeah, works, law. That's making the promise void. That's not happening. So works don't fit in with grace. Only believing, resting, and receiving on Christ that works with grace. But why is this? Why is this the case? Well, we need to get an idea of what grace is to figure out why it is that these works and laws are inconsistent as a basis for it. It's the word grace is from the Greek word charis. I could do like a really fancy Greek interpretation of charis. You know, they always like have this. But you'll say, you'll say charis. It's easier to say. Charis is uh, throughout the New Testament just simply means favor. Uh, it can mean a lot of different things, but that's kind of the, the common use is favor. Now, there's different types of favor depending on the situation. So, for example, in Luke chapter 2, it says that the Father, in the eyes of the Father, Jesus had grace or favor. Now, when we talk about me having grace, we mean something totally different because we know I'm not like Jesus. You're not like Jesus. So the favor he had for Jesus was based on Jesus's obedience because Jesus was perfect never sinned, but the type of favor or charis that God has for you is altogether different. And this is how Paul uses charis consistently. If you track it throughout his letters, throughout Romans, this is how he uses charis or grace. It means not, you might hear unmerited favor, but in context, it's best understood as demerited favor. It means you actually legitimately deserve to get punished for all the things you've done, but instead you just get the exact opposite of punishment, which is the greatest reward ever, eternal life. So, yeah, grace is not only this unmerited favor, it is demerited favor. We deserve punishment, sin, I mean, we, and wrath, and all of these things, punishment, judgment, whatever way you'd like to think about it, but instead we get the exact opposite of that. And so this is kind of what we mean kind of what we mean. This is what we mean by grace. And you see this definition of, of grace, what I just gave you, it really pops in Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the demerit part. We're all in big, big trouble and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's point is, Y'all messed up, y'all sinful, you're all evil, and you deserve to be punished. But guess what Jesus did for you? He loves you despite the fact, in spite of the fact that you're, you've messed up here. He loves you and he's given you a gift. That's what grace is likened to here. Notice that. It's called a gift. God gives us the gift of eternal life instead of punishing us for our sins, putting us under judgment. It's a gift. And you know when you see... Grace as a gift, you have a better understanding of what grace is, but you also realize how inconsistent grace is with works. When someone gives you a gift, what do you have to do? 
You have to run like a marathon or you know, work 90 hours a week. Oh, you just got to receive it. That's all you got to do is it's a, you just, someone gives you a gift, you receive it, and you're like, all right, let me do 10 push-ups right now. They think you're weird if you did that. But, you know, you, don't have, you just receive a gift. You don't have to do anything for a gift. And so that's why it doesn't work with works, but rather it's something we just simply rest, believe, and receive. Receiving a gift, that's what grace is. This is how Paul puts it, the really clear difference between grace and works. Some people try to bring works and grace together like this weird sandwich of grace and works. You know, if everything is gracious, so nothing is gracious. There is a pastor that's very popular that tries to say everything is gracious, even works. Well, then what's even grace even mean if it just, you just strip it, it just means everything. But there's a very clear and specific meaning of it in Paul's writings. Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So notice it says, if it's on the basis of, now that's very important to remember as we look at this, if it's on the basis, if that's the foundation of, of, of your grace, is these works, then it's no longer grace by definition. It ceases to be grace. Now some people read this and say, okay, well that means like, if I, re if I receive grace, if I have grace, that means I just better sit at home and watch daytime television. Better not do anything. You know, don't do anything good. You can do bad stuff because it's grace. You merit a favor. So that means it doesn't even work with works. Forget about discipleship and following Jesus. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, no. What we're going to see is that when grace comes into our life, something changes in us profoundly. And, but that doesn't mean that that's the basis of which God loved us and showed us demerited favor in the first place. That's not the basis for it. The basis actually is the work of Jesus, not our works. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Not by striving and achieving, resting and receiving. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All the glory goes to God. That's the advantage of grace. It's a beautiful thing that magnifies a great being, such as God, the greatest being, as a matter of fact, that has infinite goodness. It magnifies his greatness. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice that. We're created for good works, which God prepared that we should walk in them, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So works flow from grace from this section. It's very clear. And so there, there has to be a crucial and fundamental distinction that, that is made here. Grace cannot be the result of works, but once you receive grace, it results in works. So grace cannot be the result of works, but once you receive the grace of Christ, it changes your life and things start to happen. Transformation happens. God works in your heart. So that's the initial reception. It's not it has nothing to do with how good you are, but it, it produces gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done already in Jesus Christ. So you have more good works. Now I've heard people say things like, well, yeah, we are saved by grace and faith, but this is after all that we can do. Now, and the idea here is, you know what? Do your best and God will make up the rest. That's the idea. But see, that's working and that's no longer grace anymore. See, that is not grace because grace is even though you deserve death and hell, God swoops down to save you anyways because he loves you for you. 
And this makes grace far more beautiful than we can ever imagine. Because God's love for you isn't like a consumer. It is not consumeristic. Consumerism being this idea, if I do things to generate my value, my worth, and then you'll love me like a restaurant. You know, okay, well, if, if Denny's is, Denny's is kind of going downhill right now, I ain't going to Denny's anymore. Forget that, you know. Um, <laughs> didn't mean to speak badly on Denny's. But anyways, if you like it, it's okay. So yeah, if something doesn't produce value or worth, you don't like it anymore, it's I'm going to go on to something else. You know, consumerism's in the church. Well, you know, if the pastor had a bad day on Sunday, we're not we're going somewhere else. That's consumerism. Like, okay, I'm only going to be your friend so long as you're going to get me stuff. You generate, you know, value for me, for me to get stuff. Then I'll, then I'll stick around. I actually thought about this um, today. I, I, I had a friend, and, I, and we know how, like, slimy... And inauthentic that is to be that way. I had a friend in junior high. I was like, a, you know, I was really heavy in junior high. And I sat around playing video games for hours. And I would get beat up every day I would go to school. People wouldn't talk to me. I was like a leper. And my, my friend who I grew up with, he treated me like a leper. Like he was like, oh, I'm not talking to that guy. I used to know Nada. Get away from me. You're like, I'm losing popularity points here. I'm not going to talk to you. Well, then I, you know... Went into high school, got into wrestling, and uh, you know, let my uh, humor blossom in high school um, in ways that probably were not necessarily godly. So there's that. But yeah, and so I become more well liked, and I, you know, you know, all that muscle, all that fat turned into muscle, and I was, you know, good at wrestling, and people liked me. And this friend's like, "Hey, Nate, how's it going, buddy?" I'm like, oh, yeah, total consumer, wants to be my friend when things are going well, but when things go bad, it's like, forget it, I'm, um, I'm done with you, you know, kind of thing. And we just recognize that inherently. I think if we're being honest, that's not like love. That's not friendship. That's slimy. And God's love is not like, oh, you're doing really good. You did all these works. I'm on your good side now because you're doing all these things for me. But you're having a hard time. I don't want to get near you. That's not how God's love is. God loves you for you. And so he shows his love and manifests it on you, not based on what you do or you can produce, but what Jesus has already done for you. God loves you for you, even though you deserve death and hell. God loves me for me. In spite of all my flaws and all the stupid things I do, he loves me. And that's what makes grace so amazing, radical, and beautiful. Now contrast that with what you hear people say. Well... You actually got to clean yourself up. You got to first deny yourself of all this sin and ungodliness. And then finally, God's your, he's like, you know, the slimy friend from high school. It's like, okay, you're popular now. Let me be on your good side. Oh, then his grace is going to be good enough for you. Just clean yourself up and come to God first. You got to be a perfect little angel first. And then you can come to God and then finally he will accept you. But you see, that is the opposite of grace. Grace is you are covered in filth and sin and transgression and God puts on you the best robes. He cleans you up and he loves you through it all. He loves you for you. You don't need to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. Like some people get this idea, okay, I got to think of every sin I've ever committed and I repent of it like in my mind and then I can come to Jesus. That's not true. Uh, our minds do change. That's what repentance means. But it's we want to love God and, and hate sin, but we don't do that perfectly still in our lives. It's a change of mind. It's a change of perspective is the actual literal meaning of the Greek word repentance. And so we don't need to, we can come to God in our filth and our shame and our guilt and our messy, crying, brokenness, 
drunken tears, whatever it is. You can come to Christ in those things. Drunken tears. That's not even like a word. I just made that up on the spot. It's like a thing. No. But, you know, you can come to God in, in your sin, and your mess. If you come to Jesus Christ, he will cleanse you and justify you and put on these white robes. And this makes religious people really like, you know, kind of Caiaphas's self-righteous folk. It makes them a little nervous. And I love how this pastor said this to his congregation about grace. He says, grace is wild. Grace unsettles everything. Grace overflows the banks. Grace messes up your hair. Grace is not tame. In fact, unless we are making the devout nervous, we are not preaching grace at as we ought. What's amazing is we think of Jesus being this, when he's, we're right to think of Jesus as an amazing moral person. Um, people, really self-righteous religious people try to claim him um, because he is perfect. But he didn't have a life that reflected like the Pharisees, the self-righteous folk. We know this because Jesus tells those self-righteous folk to learn from a prostitute. A woman of the night. So the story of the prostitute that comes to Jesus and he accepts her because she trusts in him by faith. She doesn't have to clean up her act to come. She's a mess. She's a crying mess with, you know, and, and just a sobbing, crying mess. She comes to Jesus and her mess and her brokenness. This is the most amazing. I just love this passage so much. Uh, Luke 7, 39 through 50. The Jesus and, I guess we'll say the woman of the night. Um, the world's oldest profession. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited her saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. She's at his feet. And he's like, oh, if, he's, if this guy is, you know, claims to be what he is, he should know that this woman is dirty, filthy, and unclean. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to him, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came and she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he is who is forgiven little loves little. This is not saying, well, I've not committed that many sins, so I don't need to love God. No, you, you have. You've committed lots of them. Um, Isaiah says our best works are filthy rags. So yeah, no, you, you have many sins. So everybody should love Jesus a lot. He's not saying, yeah, if you love a little, you just love a little tiny bit. It's okay. That's not what it's saying. He's giving up an illustration, a point here. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him begin to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Because only God could do that. And Jesus is God. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
So we should be like Jesus as a church and extend grace to the greatest of sinners and train wrecks because Jesus receives you even though you are a sinner and a train wreck. Now Jesus does here what, the, the, what would make the devout nervous. And so makes people in the church nervous. I've known people that just cannot handle the mess of others. Like, oh, wow, they're not clean and, and you know, put together like we are. And so we got to like really distance ourselves from this really unclean person. No, God is accepting a prostitute coming to Jesus and, and God accepts her. And that shows us God's office is not at the top of Mount Everest, the top of some you know, amazing castle or some amazing feat. God's office is at the end, you know, top of the stairs. God's office is at the end of your rope when you have nothing left. And God accepting a prostitute shows us what grace is all about. I love the way uh, this pastor describes grace so perfectly. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. And so this message, it sounds so counterintuitive at first, but this message transforms us from the inside out. And that's where grace and law are so different. The law makes you want to do the opposite, wants us to do bad things and messed up things. But you see, grace makes us want to follow the law, wants to change our life. Because the fact that God loves me when I'm at my absolute worst makes me want to give him my best. Say, well, how does this really matter in my life? I mean, you're always talking about grace and forgiveness, Nate. I mean, you know, Sunday after Sunday, we kind of get tired of it, you know? You know, why do you do this every week? We talk about grace and forgiveness because it is the ultimate key to living the good life. To live a transformed life is to know that all of your sins are forgiven and that you have a clear conscience before a holy and righteous God who's infinitely holy and infinitely just. There is nothing more important and practical than that. And the proof is, and I love this John Stock quote, uh, from, and he quotes him in this book, Confess Your Sins. A mental health professional admitted, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. He could let them all go because they're struggling with forgiving themselves. They think they hold guilt and shame over their head. And so it results in trauma and brokenness in their life. But you see, grace and forgiveness transforms all of that. And, I, and you look at the Apostle Paul, a guy who, by the way, persecuted and murdered Christians, and yet he receives a grace and it just produces this massive transformation. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So the fact that God forgave him and showed grace to Paul, even though he murdered Christians, persecuted the Christian church, this made Paul not become like, oh, I can just do whatever I want now. No, it made him want to work even harder for God. You say, like, why, why does this, this it, you might be, like, struggling. This is so weird. Why does that happen, Nate? Why does this transformation take place? And I think Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, answered it best when he said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when, God, when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smite the, upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. 
And that's why grace matters. And grace changes everything. And if you've received the grace of God this morning, then you are saved. You have eternal life. All your sins are forgiven. It says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Just come to him. So if you haven't come this morning, and I don't know, whatever, you were getting drunk the night before doing something horrible, horrendous, or sinful, whatever it was you were doing the night before, um, if you come to Jesus in your brokenness, in your mess, and you trust in him, he will wipe your slate clean. Past, present, and future. Forgive you all of your sins. You are covered in his grace and you will have eternal life if you place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning and know the true God, the living God of the universe. That is eternal life. I pray if you haven't that you would do so this morning. Let us pray.